everyone. Um, so my name is Jada. Thank you for introducing me, Rabbi. Um, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here as well. Um, as uh, Rabbi Joel Simon said, I am a medical student at USF, and I also volunteer at Atlantic Institute Ensemble Cultural Center of Tampa Bay, very long name. <laughs> um, with them, I lead a lot of uh, dialogue society meetings where we organize and workshop topics around communication, tolerance, empathy. And then at school, I also plan events um, for the Medical Schools Council on diversity and inclusion, such as we've done a forum on the Me Too movement and uh, on Wednesday, we're actually having a workshop on firearms um, violence prevention, which is going to be very fun. Um, <laughs> and so I believe that, you know, being a doctor will mean more than being good at medicine, because that's a given. If you're a doctor, you should be good at your job. But I think a good doctor should be a change maker involved in their community. And that's why I chose to be here tonight. And you all have also chosen to be here tonight because we are all here to share common values and a common goal. So I hope you're enjoying uh, this gathering and I heard lots of compliments about dinner. A lot of our chefs are in the audience tonight. If you could raise your hand if you prepared a meal. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> yeah, so feel free to thank them now or later. And how can I change the slide? Awesome. So <laughs> I was going around passing these flyers out, um, just an introduction to what it is. Um, I want to let you all know a program that we're trying out called Food with Friends. And you can sign up to invite the families you're sitting with today and enjoy a meal together and hopefully continue the connections that we're starting to make here tonight. And this is a QR code. If you've never used a QR code before, it's very easy. All you have to do is open the camera on your phone and point at it so you don't have to download any apps or anything. You just point your camera at this little box and it will take you to the link and you can fill out a form. And there's only three required questions, which, are, which is your name, contact information, and your congregation. And then there's three optional questions that are like fun questions. And I'm gonna try and pair people up with families that would be like good fits, like if you have eight, uh, kids with the same age or if you have like the same kinds of hobbies, things like that. So that's the form for that. And then, um, secondly, I'm, I'm also all about quality improvement and constructive criticism. So I've posted an event survey on our Facebook page about how you felt about this event, the atmosphere and things like that. It's on Facebook right now, and there will also be another QR code for it at the end of everyone's presentations. So that was a lot of announcements for me, but I think we are ready to begin. So our topic today is um, pluralism, multiple truths existing side by side in peace to, to you, your religion, and to me, mine. Um, as we all know and experience, this issue is becoming more and more global and critical every day. Uh, this conference, which was organized by the Atlantic Institute, Istanbul Cultural Center at Tampa Bay, Con Congregation Sherry Zadek, and Presbyterian Church of Stefner. Um, so we especially want to thank uh, Sherry Zadek for hosting us this beautiful night. 
And these types of activities are among some of the best approaches to build bridges of peace between communities, share common values, get different faith and cultural groups together, and share experiences in a safe and inviting environment. So uh, the Atlantic Institute is a strong believer of the positive influence of face-to-face, -face, friendly, and respectful, respectful conversations in resolving multifaceted problems. This center brings individuals together from different communities and backgrounds in Tampa Bay. Tonight among us, we have religious leaders, community, community members of different organizations and faiths, educators, businesswomen, businessmen and women, law enforcement and security officials. Um, please take a moment tonight to get to know the people you are sitting next to, discuss your similarities and your differences, and most importantly, connect with each other. So our speakers will be Rabbi Joel Simon from Congregation Shari Zedek. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, Reverend Loli Ryder from the Presbyterian Church of Stefner, and Mr. Kemai Gulak on behalf of the Atlantic Institute. And they will present the theme of tonight's program. Again, pluralism living side by side in harmony from Jewish, Christian, and Muslim perspectives respectfully. We will start with a small prayer from each religious group to pay tribute to the victims who have lost their lives due to hate crimes and religious intolerance. So I would like to first call um, Rabbi Nathan Farb for his prayer. Thank you. A prayer for peace. Grant us peace, your most precious gift, O eternal source of peace, and give us the will to proclaim its message to all the peoples of the earth. Bless our country as a safeguard of peace, its advocate among the nations. May contentment reign within our borders, health and happiness within our homes. Strengthen the bonds of friendship and fellowship among all the inhabitants of every land. Plant virtue in every soul, and may the love of your name hallow every home and every heart. Praised are you, Eternal One, who blesses our people with peace. Baruch atah Adonai, hamvarech et amo ve'et ho ha'olam ba'shalom. And next, we are going to have Mr. Jay um, Height uh, from Presbyterian Church of Stephanie. Please pray with me. Blessed Father, who brought your people Israel out of the bondage in Egypt and who raised your son Jesus from the dead, we lift our voices and hearts to you, asking that in your grace you touch with your Holy Spirit of comfort the lives of all who suffered for righteousness in your name. Be with their loved ones as they share in their fears and pains and grant us the courage to stand by them in whatever way we can, whatever the cost may be. Chase away our cowardice and fill us with your love. This we pray in your precious name. Amen.
O comforter of every griever, I ask you for contentment after misfortune, a peaceful life after death, the pleasure of observing your face, and a desire to meet you. I ask you for your love, and for the love of whom you love, and the love of the acts that will make me nearer to your love. Make us feel your being with us, comfort our weak hearts, and foster our spirits with your favors. O forgiver of sins, forgive our living and our dead, those who are present among us and those who are absent, our young and our old, our males and our females. O source of hope in my misfortune, whoever you keep alive, keep him alive in peace, and whoever you cause to die, cause him to die with faith. O hearer of the unheard appeal, do not deprive us of the reward and do not cause us to go astray after this. O concealer of faults, forgive them and have mercy on them. Keep them safe and sound and forgive them. Honor their rest and ease their entrance. O illuminator of hearts, admit them to paradise and protect them from the torment of the grave and the torment of hellfire. Make their grave spacious and fill it with light. Thank you for joining us in that prayer. Um, after our pres presenters are finished, there is going to be a brief Q&A session for your questions or contributions. And our first speaker, Rabbi Joel Simon, uh, the ninth rabbi in Congregation Shari Zedek's 124-year history. I would like to call upon Rabbi Joel Simon to come to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Joel Simon. Again, welcome to all of our guests, the members of our congregation. It really is our honor to be the host this year and how appropriate um, that, that we come together in a synagogue, in a sanctuary at a time when sanctuaries are in the news for something very different. That we come together and say ours and our greater sanctuary and what it represents will be one of gathering, of fellowship, and of peace. There is a common belief that when someone who is not Jewish comes to a rabbi and asks to convert to Judaism, the rabbi turns him or her away. If that person returns, again, the rabbi says no. A third time, the rabbi says, no. But the fourth time, then, according to this tradition, someone has shown that their intentions are genuine and they can continue their studies leading to conversion. While some rabbis may take this approach as their own, it is far from universal. The following was written at the end of the 12th century by Maimonides, also called Rambam or Moses ben Maimon a doctor and one of the greatest rabbis of his time, of all time, as he wrote a code of law that would become one of a handful of defining texts from the Middle Ages that ultimately prescribes the way in which, in so many ways, Orthodox Judaism is understood today. Maimonides wrote, if someone from the other nations wants to convert to Judaism, 
they may. But if they do not want to, we do not compel them to accept the Torah and the commandments. As we think about the way in which Judaism approaches pluralism, the ability to exist, to coexist side by side with one's neighbors, acknowledging their right to believe and act differently from oneself while still embracing one's own truth, I think we learn a few important things from Maimonides' short law. First, he states that those who wish to convert are welcome. While the tradition taught in my first example is important, as it teaches that before making any important life change, like converting to another religion, we should be sure that we're doing so for the right reasons, right? That's why we learned the rabbi would say no. And when people come into my office, I tell them the story and I tell them they should tell themselves no three times before continuing. But that tradition also creates an image that could be interpreted as higher or better than thou. In other words, requiring the rabbi to say no three times to a potential convert could make it seem like we think we don't want or need others to join our community, or even worse, that we don't view others as worthy of joining the Jewish people. But Maimonides expresses no such concern. If someone wants to convert, after fulfilling the necessary study and accepting the obligations that come with being Jewish, they're able to do so without any other obstacles. And this is the practice of most Jewish communities today. But he continues, if they don't want to, we don't compel them to accept the Torah and the commandments. While Maimonides suggests that we welcome potential converts to Judaism with open arms, he also makes it clear that we as Jews do not proselytize that we don't go out seeking new converts, nor do we have reason to. After all, according to the Talmud, not only can non-Jews achieve salvation in the world to come, called olam haba in Hebrew, the understanding of the afterlife that's found first in the Talmud, but that salvation is much easier to attain for someone not Jewish, than someone who is Jewish. According to this understanding, anyone in the sanctuary this evening who is not Jewish is in far better shape than any member of Congregation Shari Tzedek, especially me. I'm the worst of them all. According to this understanding, in order to be redeemed in the world to come, a Jewish man or woman has to observe all the commandments in the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The scrolls behind me are all Torah scrolls. We happen to have five. So some people think one is Genesis, one is Exodus. Every Torah in the world has the same thing written in them, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's not just the Torah. It's the Torah as it's understood today through the interpretation found in the Talmud, later the medieval codes of law like Maimonides, and the responsa of modern Orthodox rabbis as new questions come up that didn't exist in the Middle Ages. This includes dietary laws, keeping kosher, 
refraining from work on Shabbat, our Sabbath, following the purity laws regarding the mikveh, the ritual bath, and laws of modesty. We are in a reform synagogue this evening, which means that our understanding of Jewish law is that it is a human interpretation of what God demands of us. And at least those laws that are solely between us and God, like those that I mentioned, those that don't impact our relationship with other people, from a reform understanding, those laws are not binding, which means that if we don't observe them, we don't believe that we are sinning. But for someone with that ultra-Orthodox understanding of Jewish law, since we don't follow the law in an Orthodox way, none of the Jews in the congregation tonight have a place in the world to come. Sorry, guys. That's not on our website. <clears throat> now, I'm the worst of them all because from that Orthodox understanding, someone can become Orthodox. Someone can repent for their sins, start observing the way they're supposed to, and they would then be... Um, have, have redemption, but someone who leads other people to sin is not eligible for repentance. So since I teach this kind of Judaism and lead others to its observance, I cannot repent and have no chance for redemption. It's not in my bio either. But from that ultra-Orthodox understanding, for someone who is not Jewish, the path to salvation, to redemption in the world to come is much clearer. And this is where we get to the third part of Maimonides' teaching, which is also the most complex. I haven't told it to you yet. He finishes, Moses did, however, command in the name of God to compel all people to accept what's called the Noahide laws. According to the Talmud, there are seven laws that were given to Adam and to Noah. And since those laws came before Abraham, and especially before Moses stood at Mount Sinai, the Talmud states that they were given to all humanity regardless of their religion. These are the laws that must be followed by those who are not Jewish in order to receive their place in the world to come. And if you want to take notes, I'll get notes. <laughs> One, to establish a system of law. Two, to not curse or profane God. Three, to not practice idolatry. Four, to not commit adultery. Five, to not murder. Six, to not steal. And last, saving the best for last, to not eat a limb off of a living animal. Now that seems like a strange one. But if you think 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, a time before refrigeration, people would eat part of an animal while keeping the animal alive since they couldn't preserve the extra meat, but this was viewed to be too barbaric, even in a world in which meat consumption became allowed. So that's it. Those are the seven. How are we doing? Good. 
Now, there is a minority, a small minority in the Jewish world today who take this teaching from Maimonides quite seriously. And while we as Jews don't proselytize, they view it as their responsibility to spread these seven Noahide laws to as many non-Jews as possible. This, they believe, is their chance to ensure that as many people as possible have a place in the paradise that will be the ultimate redemption. Again, this is a small minority, one that's not present in the sanctuary this evening. And rather than focusing on those seven laws, I'm far more concerned with the concept itself and what it represents bigger picture with regard to pluralism in today's world. Now, there is one of those laws that I want to address because it shows how an understanding of pluralism has changed in Judaism over time. And it's the one that is the prohibition against idolatry. Rashi, who was a 10th century rabbi and one of our, one of our commentators, taught that anyone who adhered to a religion other than Judaism was inherently an idol worshiper and thus had no place in the world to come. So for Rashi, the Noahide laws were, for all intents and purposes, meaningless. Maimonides, who we've just heard from, happened to be a big fan of Islam. He looked at his Muslim brothers and sisters in Egypt and Spain with much admiration, not only because they too were a monotheistic religion, but Judaism and Islam at the time both shared a common interest in furthering medicine and science. And Maimonides learned a tremendous amount both from Muslim doctors and from theologians. He also, however, was extremely influenced by living in the time of the Crusades. And I believe as a result, and understandably, he did not look at Christianity as favorably. So in his writings, he explained that the Trinity was a form of idolatry. And he suggested that while Muslims were in the fence of the Noahide laws, Christians were outside. Now again, looking back and in the context of history, I think we can ask whether it was really about Christian theology or if it was more about the fear of Christian rule under which both Jews and Muslims were living during the time. For not long after Maimonides, a new rabbi equally respected named Menachem Meiri overruled Maimonides as he was able to reconcile the Trinity within an understanding of a fellow monotheistic religion. He would go on to include anyone, quote, fenced by the ways of religion who worship God, however they may do so. Modern Jewish thinkers have taken that verse to apply even to religions that look more like idolatry, like Buddhism and Hinduism, further broadening the understanding of Meiri's fence of who could be included. While that tent covers the non-idolater, while that tent that covers the non-idolater has broadened to include all faiths, and I would argue those of no faith as well, 
there's still an extremely important caveat to universal pluralism found in the concept of the Noahide laws. While we sit here this evening, speaking of the ways in which we can coexist together, we all know that there are those from each of our faiths who don't accept the potential truth of the other for the other, who translate their own feelings of supremacy into a fear of the other, and those who use their religion as a blurred window through which they come to hatred and too often violence. The existence of the Noahide laws in Judaism teaches that pluralism, the acceptance of the validity of other religions, of other beliefs, is vital for peaceful coexistence. But to be a pluralist can have its limits. It's okay to say that I can accept another's truth as long as that truth shares certain values that allow it to coexist with mine. And I believe that if we were rewriting the Noahide laws today, we could add an acceptance of pluralism. I don't have to be accepting of someone who is unable or unwilling to be accepting of me. But we join together this evening because we share those common values. We agree that we need to have respect for all living things, whether those living things are ourselves, our families, our neighbors, those in faraway countries, and even animals. We are commanded by God to treat all life as holy. We agree that we live in a system of laws and those laws have to be followed for a civilization to function. And we're all here tonight because we believe that dialogue with those who believe differently than we do, not dialogue with the intent of changing the other, but rather dialogue with the goal of understanding the other is vital to our coexistence. This sanctuary this evening and the meal we shared together earlier is the definition of what a pluralist society could be. And I'm so grateful that we get to be a part of it tonight. Martin Buber, a Jewish Austrian philosopher who confronted Nazism head on before escaping to Jerusalem in 1938, in speaking of the potential of interfaith dialogue, taught that genuine dialogue occurs, quote, where each of the participants really has in mind the other or others in their present and particular being and turns to them with the intention of establishing a living mutual relation between him or herself and them. He wrote elsewhere, whatever the meaning of truth may be in other realms, in the interhuman realm, it means that men and women communicate with themselves to one another as what they are, not pretending to be something else. As we gather together tonight, we do so not only because of our similarities, those things we have in common, but also because of our differences. And as we do, we recognize that being different might be the quality that we most strongly share. We don't hide our differences nor do we hide our understanding of each of our own truths. 
that we stand side by side with one another, wanting to know what our neighbors view to be true as well. Acknowledging that these truths might be incompatible within any one individual, but they can coexist peacefully and lovingly in a world that acknowledges the value of the human lives that carry those individual truths. We may believe differently about the world to come, but as we share a space in this world, may our dialogue this evening continue for each of us in our communities, serving as a model for our greater community of how we can not only accept one another's right to exist, accept our right to be different, but celebrate them. And as we do, may we strive together to utilize our own understanding of what God expects of each of us to live together in a mutual respect that moves this world that much closer to a time of peace. Thank you. Um, next, we are going to have uh, Reverend Loli Marta Ryder from Presbyterian Church of Stefner. Um, Reverend Loli uh, is a native of Puerto Rico who served alongside her congregation in Stefner for about 10 years. Um, she is a mother, a wife, and strives to be a sister in our global community. She graduated from USF with a bachelor's of social work and graduated from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia with a master's in divinity and a, and a master's in Christian education as well. Please join me to welcome Reverend Lily Ryder. She made me sound really good. <laughs> Pulpits tend to swallow me, so I am going to stand out here um, and I will ask you to forgive me. I thought that we were going to be around tables. So part of my presentation today includes some time where we can have some discussion because what a great opportunity that we are here together. I'm just thinking we have to have an opportunity to talk. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you to be flexible and maybe speak with some of the people around you when it's time to talk about some of these issues. Um, thank you again. Like she said, most people know me as Pastor Loli. And first, let me just thank you again for this opportunity, not only to speak, but just to gather together as friends. It's getting to the point now where I arrive and I see certain faces that I recognize. So it truly is like we are gathering among friends. All right, I'm going to try the computer thing. Maybe. Do I have to get on the other side? I always say I'm married a techie because I don't do this very well. But <laughs> um, so one of the things I wanted to, to first mention to you and just kind of get out there is that so I'm supposed to speak from a Christian perspective, which is a quite a, a daunting task because there are so many different Christian perspectives. And so I, I wondered, I'm like, you know, maybe it's helpful for them to know some of our Christian family tree. And let me see if I can. Oh, good. There it is. Okay. Um, so most all Christians began with the Catholic Church. After we had Jesus come, uh, we were one church. And that lasted for many, many years. 
But around the 16th century, there were some who protested against some things that were going on in the church that they did not feel fit the scriptures. And so we have the Protestants with a T over here. Um, and so that branch kind of broke off. Now, an even smaller group from the Protestants is the Reformed group. And that is more about theology. So you've got the Catholics, all other Christians were Protestants, and then some of us started thinking of our theology and what we believed about God in a systematic way. If we believe this about God, then we've got to believe this and this and that. So that was yet another group that broke off. But wait, the battle was not done. Um, so within the Reformed tradition, you have a lot of your mainline churches, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, all those. We are part of that group. We're like a little tiny twig right out here. Um, and there are a lot of different Presbyterians. I belong to the Presbyterian Church USA. And it's important, that, that little last bit is important because there are many other Presbyterians, some of which, for example, would not allow me to preach at their churches because I'm a woman. So it is important for me to sit here and say, Presbyterian Church, USA. <laughs> so that is the little slice that you are going to get today in terms of pluralism. I wanted to be on the up and up about that. So, because this is a wonderful opportunity for us to discuss, I would like for you to gather with a couple of your closest new friends, and I would like for us to first introduce yourselves. And as we're engaging in exploring this theme of pluralism, what I'd like you to share is, First of all, what is your religion? If you are a convert to your religion, so if you were not born, um, you know, whatever you are right now, what brought you to your faith? But if you are in the religion that you were raised in, can you think, what was your first interaction or awareness that there were even other religions? Because most of us, I mean, I can only speak for myself, I was raised a Christian. And for the longest times as a child, that's all I thought there was in the world. Until I met Nina, two houses down, and her grandmother's potato pancakes. But more about that later. So please take, and as you notice, I only have 15 minutes, so make this quick, okay? Um, just maybe gather with some of the people around you and introduce yourself. What is your religion? If you're a convert, what brought you? If you're there for a while, when did you realize there was more?
You have one more minute. You have one more minute. I am so glad that you are engaging in wonderful conversation, but again, they're only giving me 15 minutes. So I'm going to bring you back gently but surely from your conversations. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, Three, two, one. Welcome back. <laughs> you guys did very well, and you're, some of you are still doing it. Um, <laughs> but like I said, my version of the world was a Christian one until I met Nina, who lived two houses down from my house. And we went to school together. I assumed she was Christian, just like all my other cousins, um, but she was not. And the first time I found this out was I stayed the night and her grandmother was visiting and she brought the family potato pancakes. And I remember the first time they put the pancakes down and I'm expecting to see syrup. I mean, we're doing it for dinner, but I'm like, okay, I'll eat pancakes for dinner. That's not a problem. Um, and there's sour cream and all these other toppings. And I'm like, okay, but it was delicious. And to this day, and I was like, I've never had potato pancakes. Well, she, yeah, that's what we do it. And we do it in this holiday. And she mentioned the holiday. I can't remember what it was, but I was like, thank you, thank you. And I, it did not register. And it was the first time in my life that I was like, oh wait, there's this other world of people who believe in other ways to believe in God. And so, thank God, I came from a very open family. And when I came home and I started asking, uh, oh, my mom was very excited, because she's like, oh, let's watch Fiddler on the Roof. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was opened my eyes to all these wonderful things. But it really was that beginning, uh, because Nina was my friend. She was like a sister, the sister from another mother. And we did not go to church together. We believed different. But we still played, we rode bikes, and we talked about boys together. <laughs> so, like I said, I am Presbyterian. Ah, oh, that looks so much bigger on my computer. Um, but <laughs> our church, one of the things that makes me uh, proud about my church is, and denomination is that um, it seeks to honor diversity. It believes that God is so big, so big that you can't ever uh, define God by just one little slice. And so 20 years ago in 1999, the Presbyterian Church USA adopted the Presbyterian principles for interfaith dialogue. And 
just six basic ones, and they have kind of three overarching themes. Um, the first thing says pluralistic U.S. and global societies are the context within which Christians exist. God is the creator, redeemer, sustainer whose spirit works in surprising places. So kind of one of the themes that I hear is context. Some people think we still live in Christendom, which is a Christian kingdom where that is all there is and the other is rare. But no, our current society is pluralistic. This is where we live and this is why it is important to do these kind of conversations. Number three says we're called to work with others in our pluralistic societies for the well-being of our world and for justice, peace, and the sustainability of creation. Number four says in our pluralistic world, we confess that Jesus is the truth and the way through him God gives life. And I appreciate the rabbi who said one of the important things that we do when we gather together is that we do so with integrity, that we are ourselves, that we bring our truths, but very much as number five says, we are called to relate to people of other faiths in full humility, openness, honesty, and respect. Jesus is an important part of who I am and what I believe. I know not all of you agree with that, but that's okay. And if we're gonna be in relationship, you've gotta know all of me from the things we agree on to the things we don't. I'm married. We certainly don't agree on everything, <laughs> but we make it work. So to be honest, to be true to who you are, but also to do so in humility and respect for one another. Um, number six, the final one says we need to be equipped to meet others in dialogue and witness. And that's kind of the third theme. And that is, we need to be intentional. This kind of conversation, this kind of gathering, doesn't usually just take place unless you're in a playground. I think the times in my life where I've been in the most diverse groups were in playgrounds, because kids don't care. We're just there to slide. And sometimes share candy. But as we get older, as we become adults, as we get more set in our ways, we need to be equipped. We need to be intentional about these kind of conversations, these kind of interactions. So I want to talk about the why, and I also want to talk about the how. And I want to start my conversation about the why with my hypothetical grandchildren. I have two daughters, one is 12 and one is 15. The 12 year old just got her phone and a boy started texting her this spring break. So we asked her, who is this boy? And she named his name, I'm not gonna say it because some of you know my child, but let's just say his last name is Patel. Now mama's head is thinking, not race, but religion. It's not Billy, it's not Pedro, it's Patel. Most likely this is not a Christian child. Now, my daughter and my husband, because they love my young daughter so much, start torturing her and teasing her. Oh, Olivia and so-and-so, K-I-S-S-I-N-G in a tree. And um, mama's still thinking, Patel, okay. Eventually, Olivia can't stand it anymore. She hollers, Mom, help me out. 
out here because my husband and my other daughter were teasing her. And I consider myself a progressive woman. I consider myself a very open individual. So it was very surprising to me that the words that came out of my mouth were, those grandchildren better be baptized Christian. There was silence in the car. Olivia was horrified. Babies, what? <laughs> My husband just looked at me. <laughs> Where did that come from? We can all be friendly and nice, but when it starts getting close, where are we? When it starts getting close to home, and that's why thinking about the why we do this is important. Some people do it out of the fact that we want to be politically correct. Again, the current context uh, calls for us to be in more pluralistic relationships. But it's got to be more than that. We've got to find the value. We also have to think about how being in pluralistic engagement and relationships makes us more faithful to who we are and who our divine one calls us to be. For me, the why also very much is rooted in Jesus. When I think of the things he got in trouble for all the time, it was because he valued action over belief. Jesus always seemed to value action and how you treated others over what exactly you believe. And to me and my faith tradition, that says Jesus is calling us to look at other human beings from a loving perspective, not so much about what they believe, but about how they live that out, about what they do. And that's why for me, this is important. It comes out of my faith. It comes out of me seeking to be a more faithful Christian. And I think what I am encouraging is that you seek to see out of your faith tradition the why, the important why, we engage in this kind of discussion. There's also the food. I really like the food. I love potato pancakes. I love what we ate today. Again, thank you so much. So that's part of it too. <laughs> so how do we do this? We talk about the why, but how do we do this? How do we engage in, in helpful and productive and just in filling, filling uh, pluralistic conversations with our other uh, friends and brothers and sisters? Well, I was very, very lucky. A couple of weeks ago, Barbara Brown Taylor was interviewed on NPR. She is, well, she was. She retired as a priest in the Episcopalian Church and now teaches world religions at Piedmont College. And she wrote this amazing article, My Holy Envy of Other Faith Traditions, How My Attraction to Other Religions Deepened My Love of My Own. And in this article, she talks about how she has seen in her classes where she's teaching the world religions, how her young people struggle, how often they struggle with their own faiths and are disappointed because of the divisions, because of the judgment and being forced to choose or to think that their friend is going to go and burn in hell when their friend is a wonderful human being. So she explores this a little bit and, 
And she went to a, a biblical scholar named Christer Stendhal, who proposed three rules of religious understanding. And these are really simplified because the man is dense, okay? But Christer Stendhal proposed these three rules for religious understanding. Number one is, when you're trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies or people who don't know. Because often when we have questions about something that we see or hear about another religion, you don't intentionally go and ask somebody of that religion. You turn to your best buddy Bubba and ask him, what do you think that's about? Bubba doesn't know. <laughs> and so I think that is a very important place to begin. When you're seeking to understand, do some work. Seek questions, seek answers from those adherents of that religion, not its enemies or Bubba. Number two, don't compare your best to their worst and vice versa. Don't compare your worst to their best. Sometimes I hear some of my youth, my young people, who just think Christianity is so dumb and all these other religions are so cool. Pastor Loli, we like the Buddhist temple where we can eat all sorts of food and over in, what is it, Palm River? If you haven't been, it's actually pretty good, but <laughs> it's on Sunday mornings. Um, <laughs> but that's because a lot of times they, they look at the worst, and, and we do have some bad stuff. They look at the worst, and then they look at these other cool things, and they're like, oh, man, I wish we could be that. Or sometimes it's the opposite. Look at how great and mighty we are and how ignorant the other group is so again when you're seeking to engage don't compare your best to their worst and vice versa and then number three which is kind of where she bases her article is leave room for holy envy i'd like to read to you an example that she gives of what this holy envy business is it's a story that she shares, and it's about Rabia of Basra, an 8th century Sufi mystic. She was running through the streets of her city one day, carrying a torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other. When someone asked her what she was doing, she said she wanted to burn down the rewards of paradise with the torch and put out the fires of hell with the water because both blocked the way to God. Oh Allah, Rabia prayed, if I worship you for fear of hell, burn me in hell. And if I worship you in hope of paradise, exclude me from paradise. But if I worship you for your own sake, grudge me not your everlasting beauty. Taylor says, in Christian tradition, this comes under the heading of unconditional love, though it's usually understood as the kind of love that God has for us. But now, thanks to a Muslim mystic from Iraq, I have a new way of understanding what it means to love God unconditionally. Whenever I am tempted to act from fear of divine punishment or hope of divine reward, Rabia leans over from her religion into mine 
and empties a bucket of water on my head. This, I believe, is how holy envy is meant to work. So when we are seeking to understand and engage one another, it's okay to look at the other side and say, I really like that. I really like those potato pancakes. But more than that, it's about looking at the other side and appreciating and then thinking about how does that make my belief deeper? How can I take some of the practices from other traditions and bring them to mine so that it can deepen my faith and my relationship with God? So that's her definition of holy envy and that it's okay for us to look over and see, I really like that and ask, tell me more about your prayer practice. Tell me more about these stories and see then, bring that into your circle. And how does that deepen my faith, my relationship? I've got one more this question for you guys to discuss. You guys ready? Again, I only have 15 minutes, keep that in mind. What is something you appreciate, admire, or gives you holy envy from another religious tradition? So please take a couple of minutes to talk about that. What is something that when you've observed it, heard about it in another tradition, what is something that you appreciate, admire, or gives you holy envy from another tradition? Go to it.
You have one more minute. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back. It seems like you guys have had a wonderful time talking about this topic. I'm glad that you appreciate a lot from one another and I encourage you to continue this conversation of appreciation. Just a quick recap. When we seek to engage the rules of religious understanding, let us seek to understand by asking the adherents of that religion, not people that don't know. Don't compare your best to their worst or vice versa. And leave room for that holy envy. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to Christian borrow something from an imam who whenever he would close gatherings together, he would say, I hope that our time together makes you a better Muslim, a better Jew, a better Christian, a better human being. May God's blessing be with you. Thank you so much. That was very interactive and fun. It's my favorite kind of event. Um, anyone who's ever done a Dialogue Society meeting with me knows that I love group activities. Um, <laughs> so our last speaker for tonight is Mr. Kemal Budak, who is a volunteer at the Southeast Islamic Community Center. Mr. Budak works with the Department of Sociology at Emory University. He previously completed his master's degrees in sociology at University of Houston Clear Lake and in Islamic studies and Christian and Muslim relationships or relations at Hartford, Hartford Seminary. And his research areas include religion, immigration, media, and gender. So please join me to welcome Mr. Budak. Thank you, Jada. I think uh, Reverend Loli already did the Islamic part as well. <laughs> so I don't need to speak a lot, uh, I guess. Uh, that example from Rabia was beautiful. Uh, actually, we recited that poem. Uh, one of our Turkish-American high school students in Atlanta 
she read that poem uh, at uh, one of the vigils we organized after the New Zealand uh, shootings. So uh, during the vigil, we read a couple of uh, poems, and this was one of them. This is one of my favorite poems. Thank you again for reminding tonight. And uh, thank you, Sharai Zedek, uh, Congregation Sharai Zedek, not only opening your doors, but also opening your hearts uh, tonight. Uh, it is beautiful uh, to be here. Uh, I am from Atlanta, Georgia, so this is my first time here uh, at Tampa Bay. And uh, uh, it looks like a very beautiful city, seaside city, and much better weather compared to Atlanta. I, I, I was freezing in the morning, uh, but it's right now much better. And uh, my only relationship with Tampa is uh, about uh, Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers uh, <laughs> because I'm not a fan, but I was an uh, honorary fan uh, last season for the first three weeks when Ryan Fitzpatrick or Fitzmagic in your own terms, when he got the starting quarterback job, he did a wonderful job and he passed 400 uh, yards consecutive weeks and Tampa Bay was playing, oh, I said, I can also root for Tampa Bay. Uh, for a while, I was the honorary fan. So other than this, I have no relationship, but I'm happy to be here. Uh, one of the things, uh, I'm not going to give you strictly Islamic perspective tonight, because as a sociologist who study religions and also immigration, I want to also give you some uh, holistic point of view, some universal point of view about pluralism. Because pluralism is one of the topics that we unfortunately lag behind. It's almost 2020 and we still have uh, serious problems about pluralism issues. And uh, I compare this to uh, batteries of cell phones. Uh, why? Because it's almost 2020, but they only last a couple of hours. Come on. <laughs> After all this technology, is this all you can do, guys? Only a couple of hours, battery? Not a good thing. Similarly, we don't do very well with the pluralism. We lag behind, unfortunately. In 2020, we should have been much more progressive compared to earlier times, earlier decades, sometimes earlier centuries, because rabbis uh, gave the example about Maimonides. He used to live in uh, Andalusian uh, Umayyad, Spain, where Christians, Muslims, and Jews oh, for decades or centuries lived together until the uh, uh, Inquisition. So I think we, we need to do better than this. But uh, other than that, I think pluralism is also very important for true interfaith dialogue. What do I mean by true interfaith dialogue? Because I have been doing interfaith dialogue for more than a decade. And I have met uh, representatives of different religious traditions and faiths and spiritualities from all different denominations, everything. And I found out that some people come to that meeting to convert you. And when I say convert you, of course, sometimes they come to convert me as well. And there, these people are mostly Christians, Muslims, and then there are some other faith traditions as well. Their only agenda is to convert you. But if you come to the interfaith dialogue meeting with an only sole agenda of converting other person, number one, when you have one-on-one -on -one dialogue with that other person, deep down inside you say, I feel pity for you.
because you are gonna burn in hell forever. This is what, because this is what you are thinking for the other person. Uh, and this is not dialogue, this is monologue. Because you really don't listen to, and when I say you, please don't get offended. When I say you, I mean all of us. We might be culpable or responsible or guilty a little bit about this. When we do this, we only think about our own response that we are gonna give to the other person and it becomes a monologue. I think the real pluralism will enable us to have the soft and hard tolerance. What do I mean by soft and hard tolerance? Soft tolerance is, and by the way, I don't like the word tolerance uh, very much because a lot of the times tolerance means putting up with someone. Okay, you are there. Okay, I accept your existence. Don't mess up with me a lot. Okay, I'll give you your religious freedom. Uh, so this is my tolerance to you. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes if you don't read some of the Quranic verses without any commentary, you're going to understand similar things. For example, one of the things that the verse which was mentioned to your, to your religion, to you, my religion is to me, shouldn't be understood that way. Okay, this is your religion, that's my religion. Quran actually doesn't say this. For example, uh, you can also Google this, I'll give you the verse number so that you can also Google because there are like 20 different English translations of Quran. There's only one Arabic uh, scripture. For example, in, uh, there, there are beautiful three verses in chapter five between 47 verse number 47 all the way to 49, but there's especially one verse that I like, and in, in which God says, if God had willed, he could have created you as one nation, or one uh, group of people, or one community. Which means that he didn't. Which means that he wanted to make us come together and learn from each other. So this is Quran, I am reciting or I am quoting from Quran. And another verse from the Quran says, and this is chapter 29, verse number starting with 45 all the way to 47 this time. And at one point it says, and this time it's not God who speaks, but it is one of the believers. And that person says, our God and your God is one and we bow to him. Which means that again, whatever we, whatever name we give to the God in different languages or faith traditions, because sometimes some Islamophobic people come to me and say, hey, is Allah different than God? And I say, basically it's the same person, same deity. How come, they say. And I say, for example, in the Arabic-speaking countries, there are Arabs, not all of the Arabs are Muslim, there are some Christian and Jewish Arabs. For example, Christian Arabs also say Allah. So Allah is basically the Arabic word for God, just like we use God uh, for in English or Dios in Spanish. We say adios to God, or I entrust you to God, adios. So uh, these are some of the commonalities that we always uh, see uh, between each other. And finally, one more verse from the Quran. Uh, this time God says uh, in chapter 3, from verse 62 to verse 66, all people of the book, God says. And when you hear the exclamation mark, people of the book, in the Quran it means Christians and the Jewish. 
because they are also with scripture according to Quran and Quran not only addresses Christians and the Jewish people as people of the book but in social life it removes the dietary and also the marriage restriction for example a Muslim man can marry to a, a non-Muslim uh, for example Christian or Jewish woman or Muslims can eat kosher and this is a very good uh, luxury especially in the United States because we already have that kosher system in the United States well settled thanks to Jewish immigration decades or even centuries ago we have all the different kosher uh, certification agencies so as long as there is no alcohol in it I can eat something kosher which is a something a very good luxury to know so I, I'm always thankful and grateful to my Jewish sisters and brothers this way but my main point here is and which I I think I got inspired a lot after the New Zealand shootings I think and think of this as like a self-criticism as well because after seeing some of the good reactions or the solidarity by the non-Muslim people especially in New Zealand after the shootings starting with the New Zealand Prime Minister and I said this is something Muslims should definitely imitate and emulate because as a sociologist I looked at some of the pictures in which Muslims they come together and holding hands and they protect a synagogue or church I found only one picture like that. There should be more, I believe there are more, but I found one picture in which Muslims holding hands and they are in Egypt, they are protecting a church because Egypt is 9 or 10% Christian, especially Coptic Christians. But there are a lot of other examples, non-Muslims holding hands and protecting a mosque, starting with Egypt other countries and the last example is New Zealand so when my Muslim friends either in our whatsapp groups or Twitter or other places when they share these good things after New Zealand as a goodwill gesture I always tell my Muslim friends what are you waiting to do the same if God forbid if something similar happens to a Jewish or Christian person as Muslims you should do the same and I did when on October 27th when the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting took place I sat down even though I am volunteering for the Atlantic Institute as well I sat down to my laptop and I just wrote a couple of emails to my rabbi friends or my Jewish friends who are not rabbi just regular Jewish congregation and I said we are with you I am with you guys I share your grief and please let me know what I can do for you and I was invited to a couple of uh, synagogues and in one of them I led the prayer, ecumenical prayer because there were also a person from the Sikh community there, was, uh, there were two different uh, Christians, one Protestant, one Catholic father and then all these different people, I read also one small portion of the prayer and I felt that I tried to show just sincere and genuine uh, solidarity and I didn't have any hidden agenda to convert those people or those kind of things nothing but what happened is several months later when that New Zealand shooting took place 
all these rabbi friends of mine, they wrote me similar emails. And, I, and they said, hey guys, if you are going to organize anything, vigil, or we are going to be there with you. And we organized the vigil. Three or four days later, uh, it happened on uh, Friday, we organized the vigil on Tuesday, four days later. And we had a packed house like that. And uh, all our speakers were non-Muslim. And uh, rabbis from different uh, traditions, Orthodox, uh, sorry, not Orthodox, but there were conservative and reformist rabbis. And then there were our friends, a Baptist friend. And this is interesting because the Baptist preacher came from Cartersville, Georgia. If you know Georgia, Cartersville is in the middle of nowhere. And historically speaking, in the deep south, a Baptist preacher coming to a Muslim place and preaching for that Muslim people is unheard of. It is unprecedented because we know the history. I, as a sociology of religion people, I know the history of especially the deep south very well. So a rural Baptist preacher coming, but the good thing is they also opened their doors to us because a lot of our friends, they escaped, they fled from Turkey under the authoritarian regime of Erdogan, they escaped, and they opened their doors to our Turkish-American friends, and they did, uh, we, we did bake, bake sale, and they were the ones who shopped, who got all these delicious baklavas and cookies and everything, and they left all the money to us. And uh, our friends were very happy. Muslim friends, they said, hey, this is, we never did this before because we were always doing that, those kind of fundraisers in our own cultural center, Turkish cultural center. So it was the first time a church was opening its doors. And they told me, hey, can you maybe find us a couple of other churches who can do this? <laughs> and I said, no, we are going to do something different. This time, we are going to organize the same bake sale but all money will go to the church this time. I am sure they have also their own projects. And I heard that they had an orphanage construction in Macedonia. And uh, I, told uh, I told the reverend, hey reverend, please uh, fix a date in April. We are gonna come to you and we are gonna do the same bake sale with the same Turkish treats and all these things, but you are gonna get the money this time. And uh, they said, okay. But by the time they organized it, that orphanage fundraiser was already over. However, they came up with another idea because they always have something in their mind. They said, hey, we have a refugee help program in Uganda, in Africa. So we want to raise some money for the refugees in Uganda. Uh, is that okay for you? Of course. We are also kind of refugees, even though I am an immigrant, but I had also a lot of asylum seeker or refugee friends who were escaping from the persecution of uh, Erdogan government. So we said, okay, why not? And on April 8th, in two weeks, we are going to that church and we are going to do the same bake sale. So this is one of the reflections or examples of pluralism. When you see other person as someone who is not different from you, this should be the real pluralism. This should be the real interfaith dialogue. Otherwise, if, you, if I don't, in my WhatsApp status, I always write this, be ready to learn from the other.
because the other, usually it is the 99% of the society, usually most of the time, the other is the person outside of our community. There is a lot to learn from those communities as well. And I think Muslims shouldn't look only New Zealand example, but also they should look at their own prophet, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he accepted Christians from Najran in Saudi Arabia, of course there was no Saudi Arabia at the time, in Arabian Peninsula, Christians came to there and they stayed there for one week and they did their prayer in their own uh, mosque, in, 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 in the mosque of the Prophet. So Prophet Muhammad actually embraced them, he opened his doors and 60 Christians from Najran area in Arabian Peninsula, they stayed there and they did their prayers. And this is one of the examples of real interfaith. And Prophet Muhammad never forced them to convert to Islam. This is also interesting because when one day a funeral was processing, Prophet Muhammad stood up as a, out of respect to the funeral. And the, the, his friends, his Muslim friends said, uh, Muhammad, this is a Jewish funeral. And he turned them and said, but he or she was a human being. And it doesn't matter if it was Jewish or Christian. So he showed the same respect that he displayed to the uh, Muslims. So I think 2,000 year old or 1,500 year old examples shed great light on today or earlier examples than that. Because unfortunately, we might have advanced in technology, but as I said at the beginning of my speech, we didn't make necessary advancement in uh, pluralism or tolerance or accepting everybody in his or her own uh, position. This is the hard tolerance. Soft tolerance is what we know. Hard tolerance is, are you ready to hear something maybe you won't like very much, but still, are you going to ready to hear that theological differences or faith-based differences or spiritual differences? Are you ready for that? I think this is the, the uh, heart and soul of, of this thing. And interestingly, when Prophet Muhammad passed away, his shield was at the hands of a Jewish person. Because when he was probably doing some kind of trade, and he was not a rich person, especially towards the end of his life. So he didn't have any, any money to give that uh, Jewish merchant. He gave his own shield. But this also shows us, shows us that at, the, at that time, all Christians, Jews, Muslims, and there were also some polytheists, they, were, they had a very vibrant social life. And they were just making trades, they were just doing business, doing trades, all different, different types of trades, and everything was pretty much vibrant. And unfortunately, years later, decades later, or centuries later, we, 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 we are losing this. And uh, as a conclusion, I want to say this. Uh, I want to say two things. Number one, because everybody is curious about the issue of salvation, Everybody thinks that, hey, salvation is with us, with our own tradition. But in my opinion, salvation has two components. Number one, there needs to be a God, right, who will help us attain the salvation. 
right? And then the second one is, uh, the second one is, there should be some kind of acts that would please the God that will help us attain the salvation. And those acts, I think, should be two, twofold. Number one, our relationship with God. And then number two, our relationship with the other people. And if we don't do very well in one of these, I think it's hard to attain the salvation. And when I say we, I don't mean Muslims. I think salvation is open to anybody. Heaven or paradise is large enough for everyone. But the thing is, how are we doing with other people? And how are we doing with God? Because I am fed up with my own country. I am fed up with the type of people who introduce themselves as Muslim, but they oppress other people. You might pray five times a day to God, but if you are oppressing other people, if you are not honest in your daily transactions, it is hard to attain salvation. But the main problem with the salvation, I can't say they are going to be doomed. I can't say that because I am not God. But unfortunately, a lot of us putting us ourselves in the shoes of God, we usually say, okay, we are the true ones who will attain salvation. But the thing is, we don't know. Only God knows. And he always has curious feelings. We don't know how he's going to treat us. We have no idea. And that's why, after I came to the United States 12 years ago, each and every gathering, such gathering, each and every event, global event, the last of which was New Zealand shooting, they taught me something precious, something invaluable. And that was the thing that I can learn something from other people and this will make me also, just like Reverend Lolly said, this will make me, make me a better person. Otherwise, I will be in my own cocoon and I will not care about other people. I will live in my own ghetto. I will live in my own neighborhood and I will not care about other people. This is not how pluralism works. Pluralism is like mixed salad. Everybody puts his or her own flavor to the salad, but the salad becomes very beautiful after people's own uh, efforts. Uh, and let me finish this, uh, with this example. A couple of days ago, I met a person at our own university, at Emory University. And at the, Emory University is famous with its interfaith approach. Dalai Lama always comes to the Emory University and he gives speeches. And you can always see some Buddhist monks walking on, on the campus uh, at Emory. But uh, I went to the Carlos Museum and I, at the top floor, there were three Buddhist monks and they were doing the, what do you call, mandala? This beautiful uh, sand picture and that colorful mandala picture. Uh, this is not exactly mandala, but think about this like a mandala, because I will give my example from this. You know, it is very hard to finish. It's not a one-day job to finish the mandala. It takes sometimes days, weeks, or even months. But they do this very patiently, day by day, one at a time, and they create that beautiful, colorful picture. 
And each and every color is actually you and you and me or different personalities here. And when we come together in this mandala, we become meaningful. But it takes time and it takes effort, one at a time. So as Jada said at the beginning of her introduction of the friends with food, please, I'm begging you guys, I'm imploring you from, from you that don't finish this gathering here. Continue to have these such gatherings in other people's houses or cultural centers or synagogues or churches or mosques. Because if we don't continue this, this is going to be a, like a half sentence. It's not going to be the full sentence. But if we need to complete our mandala like a peace island to form our own peace islands wherever we live, I think this is what we need to do. Meet one person, one at a time, treat the other person as a very lofty and also very respectful personality. Thank you very much.